Oh man, we're calling this Get Out There Handbook for an Active Faith. That little surfer is Rachel Tilly. She's one of our own. She graduated high school last year. She's gotten famous all over the world for surfing and is here now between tours. So you can add her to your prayer list that she keeps living for Jesus and uh, bringing home great footage. And, uh, you know, it can be a challenge living for Jesus uh, if for, if for any of us. And uh, for some, there were two things I should mention. One is, Chuck, it's good to see you in church. So good to have you here. I was going to kid you about being on vacation for so long, but, you know, Mission Hospital isn't exactly vacation. And then where did Lola go? Because today would have been 70 years married. So, Lola, good to see you. God bless you. We... So, we're talking about real faith. It's something that you do. And uh, James has a lot to say about it, and we're all the way up to chapter 2. So, in James, if you want to turn there with me to chapter 2... You know, in chapter 1, he said, uh, pure religion is this, to care for the widows and the orphans and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That faith isn't real, it isn't true, it isn't actual until you do something about it, that you live it. What you do really shows what you believe. If people say one thing and do something different, which one do you believe? You believe what they do. And then we ignore what they said because uh, we discount their words, we watch their actions. Well, we live among a lot of people who think they're Christians. If asked, you know, what's your religion, they would say Christian. And uh, yet, in fact, George uh, Gallup, when he did a poll, he found that 50 million Christians would say, I'm born again. But they didn't see anything, you know, there was no evidence in their lifestyle that talk is cheap. And real faith is something that you do. When I was eight years old, my parents were missionaries in Nigeria, and they were teaching at the missionary kid boarding school, Kent Academy. And, you know, staff can get stretched a little thin. And so my dad's boss in uh, spring told him, next year the trumpet teacher is going to be gone on furlough, so you're going to be the trumpet teacher. My dad said, well, I've never played the instrument. The guy said, well, then you'd probably want to start practicing. And so that summer, we went to bed, and that's when my dad would practice. So you understand, it's hot, it's still light outside, you wonder, what am I doing in bed? And uh, trying to go to sleep, but you're hearing, blat, 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 you know, like that, and you just go, oh my goodness. And um, fortunately, his teaching uh, trumpet career didn't last very long, but you roll forward 50 years, and my parents are retired. My mom, who was genuinely a musician, has her piano in the front room, and she plays it every day. So one day my dad said, let's go down to the music store. I want to rent a horn. He gets down to the music store, and he says, you know, remember, he's only practiced one year, and that was 50 years back on the trumpet, and uh, poorly, I might add. Um, but um, at the music store, he goes, I think I'll rent a tuba. I don't know why. A tuba. He was stuck on it except for one thing. It was so heavy he couldn't carry it. And so he decided, I'll go for something smaller. So he got a French horn. So now he has a French horn. He's practiced the trumpet for one part of a summer, but he's rented a French horn. Is he a French hornist? Or would it be a hornet? Or a horner? Or a tutor? I mean, could, you, could he say, I'm an orchestra person because he's rented an instrument in a box? No, he's just toying with it. Real musicians practice. They play. They make music. See, real Christians practice their faith. They make acts of compassion happen. They do something. 
And they're believers in Jesus who are fully devoted followers of Christ. They, they, they make compassion happen. They care. They act. It's not enough to say, well, I believe and have nothing to show for it. Now, I was up there recently, and I'm plonking away on the piano because I didn't ever practice enough. And my dad, I said, get out your French horn and let's play something. We butchered this song, okay? And at the end of it, which I think Cindy recorded, we're not showing you. He goes, wow, I think that one's ready to take on the road. <laughs> and then we moved on to the next one. We need to be better than that in our faith. We need to have something to show for our faith. And so this is kind of a, we come to a little controversial part of this book and maybe the most misunderstood passage in the book of James. Because it sounds like we're working our way to heaven. And the new, whole New Testament teaches you're saved by faith alone. Your faith in Jesus Christ and the, his act on the cross and his death and then his resurrection is what causes you and me to have forgiveness and uh, salvation. It's nothing that we did. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. So to become a Christian, it's free. To live for Jesus costs you everything. And the New Testament teaches then that we're saved by faith alone. But, I mean, but both everything that Jesus and John and Paul all seem to really line up with James, but it sounds in this passage like they're contradicting each other. Jesus said, when you do kindnesses, like I was hungry and you fed me, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick, I was in prison, you came to visit me. He says, when you do those to the least of these, you did it to me. It's acts of compassion and kindness. John said, which he was the disciple that was probably the youngest when Jesus was around. He's the only one who lived to die of old age. He's the one who took care of Jesus' mother when none of his brothers, including James, was there at the foot of the cross as Jesus was dying. John, as an older person, writes to all the younger people in the church, and he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Paul explained in Galatians, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. James had said pure religion is to care for the widows and the, the uh, orphans. And then Paul kind of summarized it all in Gal Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Can you pop that up? Read this out loud with me. Ready? One, two, three, go. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. And so you say, is it what Paul says, the just will live by faith, or what James says right here, show me your faith by showing me your works? I found Rick Warren's explanation helpful. He says, Paul is fighting against legalism, the problem like I've got to keep all the Jewish regulations, uh, like circumcision. And Paul's talking to that group. And James isn't fighting legalism, he's fighting laxity. People say, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you believe. You've heard politicians say, well, my personal belief is this, but I'm not going to force that on anybody, which means they don't really believe what they say they personally believe because what you do is what you really believe. So they're aiming at two different targets, James and Paul, but they both use the word works in different ways. So Paul uses it like he's talking about keeping all the laws and things like that. And James talks about it like it's a lifestyle, doing acts of love. 
So Paul's focused on the root of salvation, what happens to me internally. And James is focusing on the fruit of salvation, what happens outside, what shows that I'm a Christian. A few years ago, I planted some seeds from a palm tree in my yard. They have yet to grow. It's been about three years. I thought maybe I should ask somebody, what's the matter? I know I put some seeds in that dirt. Nothing's happened. It hasn't ever caught on. It's not, it's not alive yet. It's, it's still dead. And Jesus says, by your fruits, you will know them. Paul is talking how to know you're a Christian, and James is talking how to show you're a Christian. So Paul is talking about his, in, in his passage on faith alone, how to become a believer, and James is talking how to behave like a believer. So it's not a contradiction. You've been saved by grace through faith. It's not from yourself. It's all God. But we're His workmanship. We are created in Christ to do good works, which God has prepared for us to do. So when we've been saved, when we've accepted God's gift, something has to grow and show in our life. And so how do I show I am a fully devoted follower of Christ? What kind of faith saves and what we find in the big idea is a real faith is an active faith. It's a saving faith versus a false or inactive faith. Look what James says starting in chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. Now, the example here is we've just finished church and we're all greeting each other and we all go to our friends and then we go out and have coffee and donuts together and there's somebody that you uh, haven't known before but you get engaged in a conversation and you find out they really have enough t uh, a need. They're having a very tough time. But you conclude the conversation will stay warm, eat hearty, and you turn around to go back to talk to your friends. And you've ignored that they needed help. James is saying real faith isn't just talk. Talk is cheap. Do something to help. Be practical. Reach out. Maybe quietly slip them a gift or take them out to lunch or get them to the church office where they can get help. Don't just leave it sitting there and just say, oh, well, you'll be fine. A few years ago, we had a missionary come and share and, uh, about helping uh, people in a starving area of the world, and everybody heard it, and most of us listened, and uh, a lot of us hoped that it would get better in that situation. We even prayed for them, but some of the children who heard this took it to heart. They went home and made cookies that afternoon. They came and sold them at church and at youth group, and they set a, a, a goal, an audacious goal to raise uh, lots of money. I think they wanted to raise $25,000 to alleviate hunger in that part of the world. One of our businessmen heard the missionary, prayed with us, had the same hopes, went on a trip that week. He had seen the girls and their cookies. He happened to be interacting with a movie star on that trip that you would know by name if I mentioned his name, and he told him of the need and the girls selling the cookies, I think just over dinner conversation. The movie star got it. That movie star never darkened the door of our church. He never met the girls. He never ate any of their cookies. But he sent a check for $5,000 to help them reach their audacious goal of raising money to alleviate hunger in that part of the world. The businessman told me this story, and he said, I told those girls, that is such a huge goal. If you reach your goal, I'll eat my hat. I looked at him and said, forget your hat. Write him a big check. Do something practical and helpful. 
Don't just sit back and watch little girls do the job that we all should be doing together. Talk is cheap. We had a teenager here for a while at church who was working at one of the coffee shops down on the PCH right downtown Dana Point. So one day I was talking to her about her work and I said, you know, you're meeting all those Dana, Dana Pointers or Dana Poitions or what are we? You know, the people from Dana Point and they come through your window to get their coffee. They must all be happy. Tell me, what do they tell you and what do you notice? Well, sad what she said. She said, you know, a lot of them are Christians and they greet me with Christian greetings like God bless you or they give me a Bible tract or something or they say something about Jesus. They let me know they know Jesus. But the people who do that are the ones who give the smallest tips. In fact, a lot of them will give nothing. Ouch. The stingiest people I talk to all day, she said, are Christians. So if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to let people know, Give them a tip at the same time if they're working on your behalf. You know, set a certain amount aside and say, this is going to be my tip money for this week. And when it runs out, stop talking about Jesus. <laughs> you won't hear a preacher say that very often. So don't truncate it from the sentence before it. James says, also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. He goes on to uh, say, but... Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons are not atheists. They're not agnostics. They believe in God. The demons were angels who were expelled from heaven when Satan also was expelled for saying, I will be like God. I, I will make myself equal with God. And, and so they... They work alongside of him, basically wanting to frustrate and thwart the work of God in this world. So there was lots of demon activity while Jesus was alive on this earth, trying to prevent him from doing his works of righteousness. But Jesus explained, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And when you look at Jesus' interaction with the demons, well, in Mark chapter 3, the demons stated that Jesus himself is equal with God. And in Luke 8, they said, they were aware of their place of punishment. They said, please don't send us into the abyss. Not yet. And in Mark 5, they know that Jesus is going to be their judge. And they submit themselves to his authority. They do what he tells them. And then here in James 2, he said, even the demons believe and they shudder at the name of Jesus. But relax, they won't be sharing heaven with you. It's all here. It's never gotten here. They've not made a commitment to follow Jesus with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They haven't said, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. They have not said, I'm going to give my whole life to serving Jesus. Real faith is something you do. Now you look at us. Here we are. We're going to be on the move. Why are we wanting to build new buildings? Because some of the ones we have are literally falling down and uh, we need more space than we have for the Bible studies and the Sunday schools and the children and the youth. And because we believe that Jesus is God and we want the people in this area to know and we want to have a campus that as we leave it, is there's buildings that are adequate for ministry to go on for the next 50 or 100 years if the Lord tarries that long. So we're sacrificing now for future generations to have a strong church on this location for people who maybe haven't even been born yet. Now, that's not unusual. Most of us here were not here when this building was dedicated in December of 1995. 
And even fewer still people were here in 1968 when the chapel was dedicated. And there's very few, only a handful who are here who remember the first services back in 1962 or the ones that met in the home that started in 1959 in January. So other people have sacrificed so that you could have an opportunity to hear about Jesus. This is our turn to sacrifice and to prepare this campus for people to, to hear about Jesus. It's really an act of faith that we're saying that we still want to be part of God's work as long as He tarries. So will the move be inconvenient? Well, sure. I've already explained to people if it's bad now, it'll get worse. But James is writing to people who are severely inconvenienced. They were on the run. We're just moving out for a little while and then coming back. They lost their home. Some of them lost their lives because they love Jesus. We're still free to worship Jesus, and we're going to come back. In fact, the biggest sacrifice that we're going to need to make, and I'm asking you right now, isn't even mentioned in the Bible. I don't even have a reference I can turn to for it. But are you ready? You don't even need to write this down. Parking. We have the same number of cars in that parking lot that we have in this parking lot, but here we enjoy 75 to 100 places on the street. In fact, this morning, the limo guy was a little late getting them out of the lot, and we're having a crisis. People don't know where to park because the limo is on my spot. And um, just kidding, somebody's, you know, what I'm saying is they were cramping things. When we go to San Juan, it's going to be more cramped for parking because we're not going to have the street. So here's what I'm asking you. Please, make a friend Look around, make a friend with somebody here and carpool. Meet at your house, meet at their house, meet at Starbucks, meet at Ralph's, meet anywhere except at the church. Just show up without your car. Now, you're all looking at me crazy, but you know, they have a little, uh, when the BSF Bible Study Fellowship was meeting here and they had a new study going, they had a parking police that I might need to hire. Because they looked at their group and said, if you are under 70 years old, do not even come in our parking light place. So we ought to put it at 80. If you're under 80, don't even think about parking in the lot, okay? Said, certainly if you're going to come in here, have four people in your car, okay? Now, I wish I was joking. This isn't a joke. I want you to come to church with four people in your car, and I really want you to come to church, and I really want you to get there in half the cars that we get to here now. We can help each other this way. And you think, oh, it won't matter. It's going to matter a lot. And if, if, if you're getting four in your car and having it, figure out a point to meet or a restaurant you're going to go to afterwards or where you can get a cup of coffee. But we have to share and we have to work together. And if that's the biggest sacrifice we're called on to make, it's not a big deal, is it? Who can look around and say, I bet I could find a friend here in the room we could ride together from somewhere. Okay, you're all supposed to raise your hands now, so I'll keep talking about it if you need to, okay? This is your chance. Who thinks they could actually find a friend and come in with four in their car? Okay, it's, it's got to be virtually all of us, okay? And for, it'll get worse. Can I explain how? So just so you can be ready, you'll pull in the lot, and guess what? There's some parking places right there close to the door. That's for the 90 years old and hired that have trouble walking. Not for you. For the people who have wheelchairs and walkers, and canes. They park in that section. The rest of you park out farther, and the staff don't even park on the property. You know what I'm saying? It's just take that somewhere else and, and figure out a way. It could kind of be fun. Figure out a way to get there without your car, okay? And there will be somebody standing there watching to be sure you're not, oh, that's a close spot. I got to have that. No, you don't. Get there sooner. Wear your tennis shoes, you know? Get ready, if this is the biggest sacrifice, who thinks, okay, I can park farther away? 
You want me to keep talking about this? Come on now. This, do you see why this is such a spiritual struggle and it's not even mentioned in the Bible? It's really sad. We go, oh, but I got to have my, my big pile of tin right here where it's close to me and I can drive away fast when I need to. No, we don't. And James is getting worked up about this to say your faith, you need to put it into practice. And for us, this is uh, it's really kind of, I'm trying to get real practical, but it would make things flow smoother. Make a friend and ride together. In fact, Maxine, she's 97 now. And she says, I won't even be able to drive to church anymore. I'm thinking she's having a problem. I said, why? She says, because it's only two blocks from my house. <laughs> so I should walk. I can't possibly take one of the places. So if you're younger than Maxine, help me solve the problem, okay? See it as a spiritual problem. Pray about it in your small groups. Figure out how do we get here and leave our cars at home? or leave them at Costco, or leave them at Albertsons. I don't care where you leave it. Don't tell me. Just don't bring it. Hire one of the limo guys. They're not going with us. <laughs> Let's go on and look at what James says. Verse 20. He kind of got worked up about real faith, and active faith saves you. Look at, he says, verse 20, do you not want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, I think if James had a wife, and if he let her proofread this letter, he probably would have deleted this, you foolish person. But you could tell he's kind of getting exercised about this. It's pretty direct and pretty demeaning, but it's true. It, it fools that person, but it doesn't fool God when you're all talk and no walk. When all it is is just a verbal faith or a Sunday faith, but you don't put it to practice during the week. Look at verse 21. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. That's what I want. That's what you want, to be called a friend of God, regardless what it costs. Remember, James is writing to people who are on the run. It has truly cost them something to follow Jesus. Abraham first shows up in the Bible in Genesis 12. He's 75. He's headed into retirement. He's wealthy. He's got it made in the shade. Surrounded by his tribe, life's good. He's prospered well. He's not worried about his golden years, which Wayne Johnson once explained to me. They aren't what they're cracked up to be, and they're not for sissies. And the problem I see with a lot of people reach their golden years is they think retirement is also is not found in the Bible, and they end up retiring spiritually and just kind of coasting along for years in their faith instead of saying, I got to keep growing. I got to know more about Jesus. I got to be more in love with him. I got to keep serving and giving and praying and caring. That those never go out of style. You never get too old for those. Abraham's 75. God comes to him and says, Abraham, pull up stakes. I want you to move. I will be with you. I will make your name great. Just follow me. I'll show you where to go. And Abraham says yes. And starts the adventure of a lifetime. At 75, God promised, I will make your descendants like the stars of the sky, like the sand on the seashore. You won't be able to count them. There'll be so many. And Abraham takes his wife, Sarah, and out they go. And he also happened to, when he needed it a little later, he had, was able to muster an army of 318 men. So I'm assuming there were at least 1,000 people in his entourage that left. But he's fully expecting his wife's going to get pregnant. And she doesn't that year, or the next, 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 or the next 25. And God comes to him, but now he's 99 years old, and he says, oh my goodness, what happened to that promise? God, you promised us a son. God says, next year you're going to have that baby. And Sarah laughed in the face of God. God says, why did you laugh? She goes, oh, I didn't laugh. She says, yeah, you did. Name the baby laughter. Name him Isaac. 
next year. Do you have anything you've been praying about for 25 years? Somebody who needs the Lord, some problem that you've had, you go, how do I get over this? 25 years of, of an impossible problem? Don't give up. God finally blessed him with a miracle baby. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, and baby Isaac's born. Laughter, ha ha! God is so good, he keeps his promises. He's not in a hurry. And time goes by, and the boy Isaac is old enough to reason, and God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham says, take that son, the son of promise, the one you waited for for so long, take him to the mountain I'm gonna show you, put him out and sacrifice him on an altar to me. Abraham believed God, the Bible says, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He takes his son, and we know he's old enough to reason. They're headed up the mountain, and Isaac says, hey, Dad, I see the wood. I see the fire that we're going to start, the, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham can't even tell him. He says, God will provide himself the sacrifice. God not only provided a sacrifice that day so that Abraham didn't have to take the life of his own son, God provided himself as the sacrifice for you and for me. His name is Jesus. And came on later. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. Then he gives another example. Verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? James gives one example of this, this guy who's on easy street and in retirement. But the next example, this time it's not a rich, powerful, well-respected uh, senior alpha male. I mean, God acknowledges this is an outcast woman from the enemy tribe who's afraid she's going to be obliterated. But she reaches out to ask God for mercy and he extends mercy to her because of her faith in action people of Israel have been freed from their slavery in Egypt and they're out in the wilderness and they're supposed to learn one lesson, just trust God. And instead they whine and moan and groan and complain. It takes 40 years and they still don't learn the lesson. They miss their blessing. They miss their moment. I don't want us to follow their example. In fact, the whole book of Numbers is one, two, three, wah, wah, wah. They just complain after complaint after complaint. And it didn't get them anywhere. They should have just trusted God. So they get to the city of Jericho. It's the first one they're supposed to obliterate off the face of the earth. And Rahab is a prostitute in, in Jericho. Talk about the bottom of the barrel. Talk about God doing something that only God can do. She asks for compassion, and God says yes. Her story is found in Joshua 2. God not only saved her life, she retired from street life and she married a nice Jewish boy and they had a baby son and he becomes the grandfather to King David who God lifted up as the greatest king of Israel. Rahab becomes an ancestor to Jesus himself. Now, do you know the secret to old age? Keep breathing. Your body and your breath have to stay to keep working together or you won't stay alive. Do you know the secret to real faith? Keep serving. Keep doing your faith. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Shall we stand and pray together? Dear Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us. 
We thank you that James is telling us, even though he's being persecuted where he is, just to trust you and obey and to follow you and to, to praise you and to, to do your work and to keep looking for opportunities to represent Jesus. And I pray for us as we make this move that it will be smooth. And if it's not, we will be gracious. And, and uh, when we get tired of that, that we will just persevere to see you do a great work in this place that use us to reach people for Jesus. Thank you for the privilege. So as we head into this adventure, I pray that we will do our part. We'll pray and we'll pay and we'll serve and we'll give and we'll go and we'll help and we'll encourage and we'll look forward to the future. And someday in heaven when we're all gathered there, we will see you in your glory and all the seeds will have flourished and borne the fruit. And then we will praise you so we'll do that right now by faith. Thank you for being our God. We love you. Amen.